Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl at Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast, and I'm sitting next to my lovely wife, Stephanie. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the last podcast on CVA. If you listened to that one, you knew it was our anniversary. And fortunately, we are still married. And still so happy. Still going strong, going strong. If you guys have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot me an email. You can do it at Shannon at matchonafire.com. Shannon at matchonafire.com. Remember, it's match on a fire, not match on fire. Like a match just burns on fire, but this is match on a fire. Like Kenny Wayne Shepherd, match on a fire. Anyway, hope you're all having a good week. Kids went back to school for us this week. So we're going to do a quick podcast on snake bites. Nice. We're doing this because one of the agencies I work with recently ran back to back rattlesnake bites, literally had a rattlesnake bite, took them to the hospital and got back to station and had another rattlesnake bite. So I thought it it was the same rattlesnake. Who knows? Same crew. They kill it. Maybe the crew was just making it up. Like they wanted to be cool. Like they did two rattlesnakes in a row. Can you make stuff like that up? You're dishonest. You can make anything up. You just write a fake patient. <laughs> anyway, let's get, we digress. let's get into some snakes. Okay. I might not pronounce everything correctly because Latin is not my forte, but we're going to talk specifically about pit vipers and pit vipers are in the crotaline class of snakes. So the family of snakes that we're talking about is Viperidae, and that's like vipers, right? So that makes sense. And then the subfamily is Crotalinae, which is specifically rattlesnakes, copperheads, and water moccasins. And people call water moccasins cotton mouse as well. Why are you laughing? <laughs> this makes me think of college. <laughs> cotton mouse makes me think of college. Sorry about that. Right before interviews, you get cotton mouth. Oh, Sure. Sure. For a whole different reason. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to rattlesnakes. <laughs> I think your cotton mouth and my cotton mouth are different. Yeah. <laughs> rattlesnakes, copperheads, and water moccasins. And these are all pit vipers. And the reason we call them pit vipers is because they have these pits. And these pits are depressions located between their eye and nostril or just below their eye and nostril. And really what that is, is it's kind of badass because it's a infrared vision. It's a heat sensor. So just like having, you know, these infrared sensors that they have on military weapons and stuff, the snakes have that same thing. So it's pretty cool cool. if we had that. Yeah, it would be cool. I think. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it'd bug me. (laughs) Get used to it. Anyway, pit vipers have these heat receptors, this infrared vision, and that's how they can certainly track you when you're trying to move around or when people are being smart and trying to pick them up. And they also have these two big fangs. And and what's interesting about this class is those fangs are so big that they can't just fit in their mouth. So they kind of fold back. So when they close their mouth, the fangs retract or fold back. And then when they open their mouth, they come out so they can do a nice bike. Why you have that look on your face, Steph? I'm just thinking about snakes. I don't know. Makes me have a funny look on my face, probably. Yeah. The rattlesnake is the only one with a rattle. Mm -hmm. So that's helpful in the name. But a lot of snakes try to mimic a rattlesnake. And we know this in nature that like poisonous animals have a lot of mimics because other animals are getting a free ride off that poisonous animal. And so we have a personal story on this. I was sitting on our front porch just doing some email and I had my headphones in 
And all of a sudden I saw our dog just lose its biscuits. And I was like, what the heck is the dog doing? And I took off my headset and I heard the snake rattling and it looked like a huge rattlesnake. And I was like, oh my God, I jumped up and had my adrenaline rush and was yelling at the dog. And it turns out that it was just a big bull, bull snake. Bunch of bull. It was a whole bunch of bull, but it still got my adrenaline going because I thought it was a rattlesnake. And the you dog thought it was a rattlesnake just too. Just had to kill a rattlesnake, by the way, last week. Right? I did. I killed a rattlesnake three days, three days ago. Yeah. Once again, not, I'm not convinced it was a rattler. This was, this was a little rattle. And our daughter found it and she came and got me. And she was like, daddy, daddy, look at the little baby snake. And I was like, ooh, that's a rattlesnake. And so I said, I have to take care of it. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm going to kill it. She's like, I want to watch. But what if the mommy doesn't Yeah, so she, our daughter's almost four. So I made her go inside. I didn't have her watch it. And I did the usual. This, this is a small snake. I did it with a shovel. And then two minutes later, she comes running out and she's crying because she's like, the mama snake can't find the baby snake. So sad. Anyway, that's enough of our snake stories. But let's talk about pathophysiology of these snakes and the venom specifically. So the venom is very complex. It has multiple proteins in it um, that do damage to our system and it hits us at multiple levels. So kind of the most common thing in in almost 100% of the bites that aren't dry bites you're going to get some localized tissue damage. That means you're going to get swelling, erythema. You know, that area just gets big and red and painful. And sometimes it can affect the muscle as well. So it can have a myotoxin in it. You get things like rhabdo at that location as well. And then the the big thing we talk about with rattlesnakes and and this whole class of families is that we worry about their, their blood levels. And so once people get bit, they can get these hematologic effects. And we see that about 50%, 40 to 50% of the people that get the venom in them when they get bit, have some changes in their blood level. So we start tracking that in the hospital. We check their coags to make sure that they're not becoming coagulopathic and things like that. They get hemolysis, fibrinolysis. They get all these problems from the venom itself. And then you can have cardiovascular effects as well because you get dilatation, increased vascular permeability, you get myocardial depression, and all of this stuff can lead to kind of cardiovascular collapse. And you can see hypotension. And those two snake bites that we just had with that agency, one of the persons was quite sick. Like they needed to get, they got pressors and things like that. How often do you see somebody from a snake bite? How often do you see them be moderately sick versus severely sick? How often, you know, like. I mean, I think you can get pretty sick on a regular basis from the rattlesnake bite. There's a low mortality from rattlesnake bites, especially if you seek care and you get the antivenom, it works really well. But it can be variable, meaning, you know, depending on whether it's a dry bite or not, and depending on the size of the person, all of these things affect how severe the rattlesnake bite is. But, you know, obviously the ones I remember are sick ones. Like those are the ones that stick out in my head where I'm kind of quite nervous. So um, I think it can be variable, but uh, I don't have an exact number for you. So we were talking about the pathophysiology of this and this complex enzyme and how it affects our local tissue, our hematologic system, our cardiovascular system. And you can even get neurotoxicity from this and from a normal kind of rattlesnake that you would see where we are in Colorado, you can get perioral paresthesias and you get a metallic taste in your mouth. But specifically, people talk about the Mojave rattlesnake, the Mojave toxin can cause you to have like significant neuro problems like paralysis and things. I was watching a little National Geographic special and this guy was taking a picture of a rattlesnake and got bit and he had to paddle his paddleboard or his kayak back a mile. And by the time he got back, he couldn't move his lower extremities as all. So that'd be pretty stressful. That's gnarly. Yeah. Luckily we don't have those here, right? Yeah. They're not right by us, but people who might be listening might have them there. So look forward to that. 
then there's just systemic effects where you get like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, diaphoresis, all this stuff that's just kind of systemic. So when we talk about rattlesnake bites, it is, you asked how sick they are and how common it is. I mean, people do get bit on a regular basis and we see this in our ER pretty regularly during the summer. There's about 5,000 bites a year in the U.S. And rattlesnakes, copperheads, and water moccasins account for the most of those bites. So there are copperheads and other snakes out there, but they're just much lower rate of getting bit. And so this talk that we're talking about is specifically about these rattlesnakes, copperheads, and as you like to call them, conmouths. <laughs> and the copperheads are particularly nasty. They account for about half of all the bites. So they are a little more aggro. And those are like southeastern area. Yeah, those yeah. aren't here, right? I yeah, we see more rattlesnakes here, here and, and on That's the west. That's mostly what we see. Yeah. So people most commonly get bit in the legs, which is funny as a whole number. But if you separate men and women out, men most commonly get bit in the arms. I don't know why that is. <laughs> They're like, hold my beer, watch this. Yeah. Right? I'm trying so to grab great. one. I have another rattlesnake it. story. This probably sounds unbelievable, but I was went mountain biking once and I crashed. I was by myself. I rode down this hill and I crashed and I was upset that I crashed. So I walked back up the hill. I rode down the hill again and I crashed again. And I broke my thumb and I had this compound fracture in my thumb. And I was like, this is a terrible day. And so I tucked my thumb, it was my left thumb, so I tucked that in my jersey and I was riding home and I was coming down this path and I got going too fast again. And if you know mountain bikes, the right brake only works your back wheel. So I was pulling my brake and I was skidding because I was going too fast down this hill and there was a rattlesnake in the pathway. That's a bad day. It was a very bad day. So I just lifted, I clicked my feet out, I lifted him up and I rode over his head. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get bit. And then how stupid I was at the time. I went home, took a shower, ate some food. And then went to the hospital because I was worried about how long the wait would be. That's so, actually yeah. smart. That sounds smart. So I didn't get surgery till the next day, which That's is great. smart, I think. So about 25% of snake bites are dry bites. And that, how severe, what, the question you were asking, totally depends on the species of snake. Obviously, whether it was a dry bite or not, the size of the victim. So a little kid getting bit versus, you know, a regular healthy adult or an old person. All of those will have different effects from this. And then sometimes you can get bit more than once. Like it might hit you twice. So you get twice the load, which would have be you seen that before? Have you I've never seen, seen a double I don't think snake I bite. Either. I would remember it. I didn't think <laughs> so I haven't. If you're wondering how you make the diagnosis of a snake bite, well, hopefully, you know, you saw a snake in the ER or an EMS. We don't want you to like capture the snake and hold it for us. That has happened once in my career. Someone brought in a rattlesnake alive. Yeah. in a, like a bucket in a five gallon bucket. Oh, pictures do, right? That's yeah, nice. picture would be That's totally nice. fine. <laughs> so iPhones. you see the fang marks, you get this localized pain around the fang marks and you're getting pro you know, progressive edema. That should lead you to think, hey, maybe this is a snake bite and maybe they got some venom. Once they start getting nauseated, vomiting, they have some weakness. I talked about the oral paresthesias and the metallic taste, all of that can lead you towards this. And then obviously when they get to the ER, we do lab tests. So we're looking for that hemotoxicity and seeing what happens with that. With the systemic symptoms, if they got a big, you know, reaction to this venom, you know, they'll start to be tachypnic, tachycardic, hypotension, like all the stuff that you would be worried about. And then on top of that, some people just have an anaphylactic reaction to the venom, right? So you have venom doing toxic stuff to your system. But if you have an anaphylactic reaction to the toxin itself, that's a whole nother problem. So now you're dealing with kind of two conditions. You're dealing with the venomation and then the allergy. So in most cases, local swelling becomes apparent within 15 to 30 minutes. And so if you got bit and you're like at 30 minutes and you have no symptoms, you just see the little fang marks, you can start to be a little 
bit more uh, happy, I guess, but you're not, you're not out of the woods. So sometimes you might think that you had a dry bite, but you can start to see symptoms quite later. And so we actually want to watch those people eight to 12 hours. So you're not out of the woods until you're really at eight to 12 hours with no symptoms. So don't totally uh, just go to the bar because at 30 minutes you were okay. So we're going to go briefly into treatment, which is probably why you're listening. You're like, what do I do? Someone got bit by a stake. Let's figure out what to do. The first thing you want to do is retreat. Don't have a picnic. Yeah. Get the hell out of there. First of all, if the snake's around, you don't want to mess with the snake. So get out of there. You don't wait to try to identify the snake. Don't go capture the snake. Don't waste any time doing that. If you're out back hiking, which is usually the case, you know, in our area, someone was hiking around a trail or doing something, you know, they got to get to civilization or they got to get cell phone reception. So that should be foremost on your mind. You got to retreat. You lost this little battle. You got to get yourself towards the hospital. I often see that people from the adrenaline of the bite start retreating on their own quite quickly. Like, <laughs> I never really find the person in the same area as the, as the snake. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think the adrenaline makes them start. So hopefully that's you, genetically, nice, genetically like, engineered in us a little bit, like yeah. get away from yeah, the snake. Go. I mean, most yeah. people I see, I see do that. So you want to remain calm as well. You know, you don't want to sprint back to society, like just start walking back. Because obviously this venom is in your system and it's going to start spreading. And the more blood pressure you raise and heart rate you raise and cardiac output, you're just spreading that around the system faster. So just remain calm. Don't you know, try to limit your, your movement. If you're with other people, you, know, you, can, you can get help to kind of move. Are you speaking to the, the paramedic right now or the patient? Who should remain calm? <laughs> both. Always, yeah. It's often difficult for both. Yes. Yeah. So remain calm. If you're a medic and you come upon a patient who's sitting there, you know, then you could potentially immobilize that extremity for them, keep them calm and extricate them from the scene. When you speak of immobilization, if it's a lower extremity, are you talking about trying to immobilize the knee if it's a lower leg bite or does it, is it just that area? What do you it's just the area where the bite is. So like if you got bit on the foot that you, you could immobilize that. Or um, calf. Yeah, you don't, you have, don't to, have to do like joint above no, and below. It's like not like a broken bone. It. Yeah. So just when you're saying immobilize, just that local... Yep. And then get prompt transport. So again, this is a decision game often for paramedics as well, because in our area, sometimes they have to hike in to get to a patient. They're not with their you know, ambulance or apparatus. So you might have to help the patient walk out. Like if they got bit in the hand or foot and they can walk, it might be much quicker to just walk them out than to say, we're going to wait for a rescue team to come and do all this stuff. Yeah. So um, you can use constriction bands but I'm not a huge fan of that, but that is an option. The constriction band is different than a tourniquet. So a constriction band, you're just doing a kind of snug wrap. You should be able to slide your finger under that. It shouldn't be so tight that it's cutting off you know, all circulation. You're just trying to slow down, flow a little bit in the local area. Things you don't want to do is you don't want to do the suction and drainage. So don't, so don't mouth to wound. Yeah, it don't and, do that. Okay. Um, snake bite kits with those small suction cups. They don't, they don't, they don't work. recommend those. Yeah. Is it because they don't work or would they, they do more home harm? Maybe both. Okay. And then knives. Some people want to cut the area. You've, I've read in books, you know, you make an X over the area. You try to you know, push it like you're popping a zit to get the stuff out. Don't do that. So we don't want you to cut anything with a knife because there might be something important there, like a nerve or an artery, right? So just <laughs> let that be. There's actually like the suction pump. I think it's called the Sawyer extractor. And they claim that this works, but there's no studies that show that it works or that it's safe. 
So I would stick with those do's that we kind of talked about, the retreat, stay calm, immobilize extremity, prompt transport, and then treat the symptoms that you have. And really the end result, just like when we talked about CVA last week, or when we're talking about heart attack, time is of the essence, meaning the patient has a condition. We have a treatment at the hospital. You just don't have the treatment with you in the field. So really not wasting time and expediting the delivery to the antidote or to the treatment is key. So I know you're going to speak to the hospital treatment and what that is here in a moment, but how important would you say it is if there is air transport available that has the antidote? Uh, how important do you think it is to maybe just get them coming to the scene versus waiting to extricate and then get to the hospital? And I know it's going to be a, a situation dependent thing, but when we're talking a matter of minutes for that antidote, is that worthwhile? I mean, you're always, this is always the paramedics dilemma, right? You have to know your system and you have to know where you are and how long it's going to take to do things. So if you're out in nature or somewhere far away, you have to know how long does it take to activate a helicopter? And then how long does it take for them to fly there? And, you know, all of that transport distances versus should we just go right now? And that is a decision on the medic. And so just always think about the thing. It does take time for a helicopter to launch, you know, it takes 10 minutes for them to launch to a scene, probably for them to get in there, get flying and, and move. And the programs that have the ability to bring antivenom, sometimes they have to get that from the pharmacy. They're not stocking that in their helicopter. It's such an expensive medication. If you call and say, I have a rattlesnake bite and they're sick, that crew might have to go to the pharmacy to get it and then fly to you. And all that just needs to be taken into consideration. So there's not a right or wrong answer, just as a matter of how far are you from the hospital. So for us, you know, people could be way out back, right? It could be a couple hours to extricate them potentially. And so, yeah, a helicopter might be good in that situation, but you just have to make that call based on your situation. So for the antivenom though, it doesn't make a difference in that patient if we're saying it's a 15 minute difference or two hour difference, like where it can be. So that, that we just said in that slide that the, it starts to take effect in 15 minutes, you know, and then within an hour, you're going to have significant effects. Oftentimes if you, if you are, meaning if you're going down that road to be really sick, you're going to be really sick in an hour. So you are on the clock and the sooner you get the antidote, the better and all that matters. So you, you should just calculate the time. Okay. Thanks. The last part of this treatment don't option. So we're talking about do's and don'ts is don't use tourniquets on this extremity. So you do want the tissue to be perfused. Um, it already has a toxin attacking it. It's already doing damage. So if you cut off nutrient supply to that tissue, it could get more problems. So this is interesting because when I first learned about treatment, it was tourniquets and ice. Yeah. And now I'm seeing that those are no longer indicated. And you know, it's funny on the flip side, you weren't supposed to use tourniquets for trauma and now you use tourniquets for trauma, All but don't use them for snakes. This is medicine. And, and yep. this is why I always say when you listen to, you know, podcasts or read a chapter in a book or whatever, if it's out of date, you know, the, the data might not be right because we're constantly trying to adapt to what we're learning about the condition. So kind of summarize what the pre-hospital treatment is. We talked about the retreat, immobilize the limb, establish an IV. And if someone has placed a tourniquet, so say someone on the street placed a tourniquet, you, you can take that tourniquet off for a rattlesnake bite. Make sure you have an IV on there first, because if you take that tourniquet off, they could have some more flow and cardiovascular collapse. So you might have to do some intervention. So just be ready. Obviously, if they need oxygen, put that on. And then transport and get the ball rolling to get them to the care facility. The treatment for a paramedic or an ALS unit is just ALS care. That means you're going to treat the symptoms that you're seeing. So if the patient starts to become hypotensive from this, you're going to get fluid. And if they continue to be hypotensive or having anaphylaxis, you're going to treat it in that way. So that might mean that you need to start a presser. 
And again, with that call that they just did recently here, they started, a, you know, like a dirty epi drip. And I know people don't like that term, but they just had the, the epi that they created themselves in the thousand milliliter bag. And they just were running that in to keep the pressure up. And then you also have that push dose epi, which, you know, is my go-to these days. Love push dose. What, that, we did that in a podcast. So if you want to know about that, go check that one out. You have to listen to a whole nother podcast to yeah. learn about that one. So the mainstay of therapy in the emergency department, when you get to the ER, is the same that you were doing in the field, meaning ALS. You treat the symptoms and the conditions as needed. You cover your ABCs. And then you're going to give antivenom. And antivenom is composed of antibodies obtained from the serum of animals immunized with snake venoms. So I'll go through that a little bit, what we're talking about. But these antibodies, they bind and subsequently neutralize the molecules of the antivenom, which is our point. So antivenom was first developed in 1890 at the Pasteur Institute. And it really is kind of old school manufacturing and it still is. And you've seen pictures of people milking snakes for venom and they still do that. So they basically take that little cup and they put their fangs in there and you see the poison come out. That's how we get this antivenom really. You're, you're milking these cows, uh, you're milking these <laughs> snakes and then you inject them into an animal. And when you inject them into the animal, they start to make an immune response. And the antibodies in the blood are then extracted from that animal that you made this in. It's purified and it's made into antivenom. And usually for this, they use horse and sheep. So they take the four different types of snake venom, Eastern Diamondback, Western Diamondback, Mojave, and Cottonmouth. So generally they inject this into horses and sheep and they take one of the four types of poisonous snake venoms, Eastern Diamondback, Western Diamondback, Mojave, Cottonmouth. They inject it into the animal. So the serum is harvested from each of these groups and broken down to get the protein to produce the antibody fragments. And you have the four individual specific fragments for each of those types of venom. And that's mixed into the antivenom. So I don't have to determine which type of rattlesnake bit you or whether it was a cottonmouth or rattlesnake. I'm giving you the antivenom. That covers it, all of it. Yeah, them. and it has a mixture of these essentially antibodies in it. And from what I just described, I mean, we're milking a snake, we're putting it in a horse or a sheep, we're getting the four different types, we're that's isolating a crazy it down. job. Right, it's super tedious. And that's why this antivenom costs so much as well. And so hospitals have a limited amount of this because it costs so much. And even at times, and for example, that recent case where they had back-to-back -back snake bites coming into RER, the first patient was sick and was getting antivenom and they needed more of the vials. We needed to call a neighbor hospital to get more vials sent to our hospital. And so again, there's not like an unlimited supply of this stuff. Each hospital has some of the vials. And if you have a really sick patient, you know, we might be currying this across town to help another hospital out. The antivenom is super effective, which is awesome, but it also can have some significant side effects. And so you have to be really ready for that when you give it. And the newer antivenom is much better than the old antivenom, meaning there's, a less, like, there's less likelihood of having anaphylaxis and stuff from the, from the actual antidote. But you do have to be aware of that. And we're always kind of really watching that patient to make sure they're not having any signs of anaphylaxis after they get the medication. So the way that we decide that we're going to give antivenom is one, you have to see some signs that they are having a snake bite and they're having some effect from it, right? So even if they're getting swollen and red, you're going to say, hey, this looks like they're having an issue here. And so we generally start by giving four to six vials and we have to mix the vials up and we give that as the first dose. And then you see whether you have control or not. And if you don't have control, if they're getting worse after getting the four to six initial vials, you're going to do it again. They're getting another four to six vials. If they are improving after that initial kind of bolus, 
those four to six vials, if they're improving, then you just give them additional doses, two vials every six, 12, 18 hours. So kind of just keep it going. What I always think about when I think about these vials is it does take time to mix it. And you have like four to six vials and you have to mix each one. And the older antivenom took a little longer and you had to be gentle when you were mixing it. So it took time. And I had a patient or a paramedic call in that said he had a kid that was bit by a rattlesnake and they were, the kid was sick. So the, the report was that this kid is not doing well. And I was waiting for them to arrive in the emergency department and they came through the bay doors and I looked at the kid and the kid looked like he was ready to die. Like he was sick. He was foaming at the mouth. He was vomiting. He was pale. Yikes. And I immediately turned around and went to the phone and called the pharmacy and said, I need you to start mixing the vials as a Jane Doe, like just start mixing these vials because the kid's sick. And so they started to mix the vials and I went into the room. The kid ended up being okay and got the vials, but I got a complaint from the paramedic and this paramedic complained to the hospital because he said he had a really sick patient and I just turned around and took a phone call when he came into the ER. And and I thought it was interesting because it's totally like, you know, perspective and where you say, Hey, don't, don't always like judge somebody. You don't know everything that's going on. Obviously I was trying to take care of the kid. I knew that the limiting factor in this kid's treatment was getting the vials. Like I needed the antivenom and I wanted it to get mixed rather than, you know, go to the computer, call the farm. It takes time. So let's just get this going right now. So if that paramedic's listening that um, complained about me, thanks. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks for calling. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to call and complain. So issues with antivenom is, it's, well, as I said, it's super high cost. It's hard to make. Um, There's not a huge supply. So if you have multiple bites or a super sick kid, you know, you might have to borrow some from another hospital and then you can get a significant allergic reaction, usually less than 10% of the patients, but that's definitely real and can be problematic. Other things you just have to worry about with patients is they can get compartment syndrome. And I talked about that briefly earlier, but as that extremity swells and starts to get tight, it can cut off circulation to the muscles in that extremity. And you can get a compartment syndrome that then is an additional problem to all the other stuff that you're dealing with. So with that, and then you just to backtrack a little bit, had mentioned if somebody had put a tourniquet on prior to the paramedics arrival, we can remove that. How much with this compartment syndrome and with a tourniquet being placed before arrival, how much do we need to worry about, say, hyperkalemia or something from that from that tissue breakdown? Well, that's part of the reason why you put the, um, you know, I said you put the IV in before you take the tourniquet off. Mm -hmm. So you do have to worry about that. If muscles dying, muscle is full of potassium, right? And same with a crush injury and all of these things. So when you release that, you can have a problem. So you definitely have to be ready for that if you're taking a tourniquet off that's been on there for some time. So people are thinking of that whole hyperkalemic treatment plan as well. And I think, you know, when you listen to this podcast, obviously I'm giving you my opinion. Your medical director might have a difference of opinion on what they want you to do if a tourniquet is on. Um, So again, you follow your protocols, but we're giving you just the physiology behind it and what you need to worry about. So Patients, anytime you see a large amount of tissue death in general, though, you want to think about that. Definitely, yeah. And then you got to worry about just bleeding too. So because people can have all these hematologic changes, they can start bleeding. So say the patient had a predisposing issue or they're really sick now from the snake bite, you might have to give them blood, right? They might start bleeding into tissue space and things like that. So just be aware of that if you're treating a patient with fluids and then pressors and now you look like they're losing a lot of blood somewhere. You might have to get blood as well. So let's just recap briefly the do's and don'ts of the treatment for the snakes here. The vipers. I like that. I like calling them vipers. They do sound tough. Um, they are tough. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared of them. <laughs> so the do's, retreat, remain calm, immobilize the extremity in neutral position. If you need to do that, 
ideally below the heart. It's a little bit different than when you break a wrist and we tell you to elevate your wrist. If you get bit in the arm, you're going to splint it and keep it low because you want it not to be perfusing really quickly. Prompt transport, and then you may use constriction bands if you have them, if it's in your protocol. But again, these aren't tourniquets and you, you want to be able to slide your finger under them if you have them. So don't make them too tight. And then the don'ts, I don't recommend the suction and drainage snake bite kits. Don't cut the leg with your ex, you know, like you were taught in Boy Scouts. I don't think the suction pump really works. And then stay away from tourniquets. We hope you enjoyed the podcast on pit vipers. We think they're pretty cool animals, but scary. I don't want them in my yeah, barbecue area. Yeah, them for sure. Don't want them in my barbecue area. That's why you took it out. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And we uh, hope you enjoy the show. We'll see you. See you guys. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine, and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening.